welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are continuing our series that covers sex, scandal, social climbers, gossip and pop culture with a really fun, I promise, fun with a capital F episode about guilty pleasures, the role of bonnets in 19th century literature and Keanu Reeves. Lauren, yeah. Why is Keanu Reeves in this episode? What have you been talking about with our guests? I promise it's like, it's relevant, sort of, ish, I think. Um, So Ariel Zabrak is our guest today, and she wrote this book called Guilty Pleasures, which is a study of lowbrow femme fictions. And you can't see me, but lowbrow was in quotes there. And uh, one of my favorite chapters is called Expensive Sheets. I love expensive sheets. Just my God. (laughs) That's one of my absolute pleasures, can I tell you? (laughs) Uh, And that section of the book talks quite a bit about rom-coms and, you know, that Nancy Myers movie aesthetic Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. rich people with beautiful Mm. real estate and perfect white linens and big kitchens. Yeah. And you you know me, I've been just, you know, known to throw on a Nancy Myers or Nora Ephron movie in the background while I cook or clean or just, you know, work for the for the ambiance. I want to shout out to my joint favorite movies of all time. I have to say joint because sometimes mm. I just say it's one or the other and then I get corrected. Uh, the Holiday, Nancy mm-hmm. Myers, and you've got Which Mail. Which is going to come up this year no, again, it is by gonna the way. Come up. And you've got Mail by Nora Ephron. And mm-hmm. yeah, those houses... The thing that's wild about the holidays, I kind of get like Amanda having that much money, but Iris's salary working for the Sunday Telegraph as a wedding columnist living in that house. That's like a nice little bit of nothing, isn't it? What is that? Are you joking? Listen, fantasy. We're getting into the fantasy and it involves hot men and real estate. (laughs) Uh, Lauren, do you follow the Instagram account Nancy Mize Interiors? I do not. But I am actually opening up my phone right yeah, now. Yeah, do so it right I, now. Like, do not forget. Yeah, because I will absolutely follow that. It is. It's just stills from the houses and Nancy Myers movies. That's all it is. So, just before this interview, I put something's got to give on, and this is a movie I have seen, you know, quite a few times. I remember actually seeing it when it came out, but this was the first time I really you know, watched it and like took it in. Mm. And um, I could not stop thinking about it because it's just like absolutely wild. And because, you know, Ariel had written a bit about Nancy Myers in her book, I like just like emailed her before the interview. And I was like, <laughs> have you seen Something's Gotta Give? I, I know this is not related to what we're going to talk about, but I also need to talk to you about it. And we and we did that. So that that is why that happened, Hannah. I watched that like a week and a half ago. And I always make oh. Jack watch Nancy Myers and Nora Ephron movies with me. He hates Sleepless in Seattle, by the way, which is unforgivable, in my opinion. He thinks it's really weird and stalky. But yeah, he quite likes Nancy Myers. He loves the holiday. Um, I think he will like this one. But I... I Interesting. It was really turned off the first time I tried to watch it because I thought Jack Nicholson was too creepy. <laughs> uh, he is. Like, yeah, it's 
So I didn't. And then the second Still time valid. I watched it, I was like, okay, Diane Keaton, like, she's doing... She's so... It's like the most prime Diane Keaton performance of her career, I mm. think. it's She's possibly mm-hmm. the most Diane Keaton she could ever be. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to spoil Something's Gotta Give. So just be warned, listeners. You might need to fast forward, you know, if that really, if that really matters oh, right now. This film is old. You don't... If anyone fast forwards this part of the episode, shame on you. (laughs) (laughs) So this film stars Diane Keaton as a very famous and very wealthy playwright. She's Mm. got mad money. And she is caught in a love triangle between Jack Nicholson Mm. and Keanu Reeves. And Jack Nicholson's character is a misogynist. But, you know, one of those uh, charming sexist Mm -hmm. types. Again, again with the air quotes. And this guy is also dating Amanda Peet's character, who is not only 30 years his junior, but is also Diane Keaton's daughter in the film. Keanu, on the other hand, is playing a very sweet doctor who just loves and respects Diane Keaton's work and slides into her DMs sort of like Robert Browning declaring his like love for her and saying that, you know, she's his favorite writer of all time. And his character has no flaws. He just wants to bring her flowers, take her to Paris, and buy her jewelry. And, like, by the way, this is Keanu at, like, just peak hotness. Still hot, but, like, this is, like, a 38, 39-year-old Keanu. And it's just, Mm -hmm. he looks great. He just looks great in every scene. And I know I bring this up all the time, but once... I ran into Keanu Reeves on the street, and I just applauded him because he was so beautiful. Like, I just stopped... (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's a beautiful person. And I was staring because he was so beautiful. And then I was like, wow, that beautiful person is Keanu Reeves. And then I just started clapping because there was nothing else (laughs) to do. What's funny as well about Keanu Reeves in this film, it's like, it's so female gaze, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just even non-threatening. It wants nothing from her. Like, nothing, nothing like... You he know, loves there's an no older conflict. Woman. Loves an older you can woman. Age loves in her. Front of him. Loves her brain. Her intellect. Loves her brain. Um, so yeah, for reasons that are still very unclear to me, Diane Keaton dumps Keanu for the guy who has a problem with commitment mm-hmm. and wants to screw her daughter. I mean, I but they they like walk on the beach and stuff. They're like soulmates, you know? And like he learns to not have as much sex i don't know it's like i think a, he a learns to be a mind. little less of a misogynist i guess he's like now in my 60s i sort of respect women because i respect you mm-hmm. and she's like great good enough for me she loves writing a misogynist can i say loves it some of the best i think she really wants to turn a misogynist i think that's her her thing she wants mm-hmm. to show you the fantasy of like turning a misogynist but um, for me, it's just not working because I'm just not willing to put that work in. I just want it. I want it ready made. I want well, Keanu Reeves. I'll just say this. You know, Diane Keaton makes some choices that um, I really don't understand in mm-hmm. this movie. But, you know, attraction, lust, it's a funny thing. And I am just really overall fascinated by people who are just, you know, drawn to the wrong people and to bad decisions like a moth to a flame, because that reveals something very interesting about them 
as people. In this case, perhaps internalized misogyny, but you know. (laughs) This all really reminds me of conversations that we've had on the show about like Charlotte Bronte lusting after her very married teacher, Monsieur Heger. And she sent him like loads of letters, even even though like she knows one, don't put it in writing. What are you doing? He's got the don't give him the receipts. Uh and then it's playing out in Jane Eyre, and Jane Eyre is just obsessed with Mr. Rochester, even like after she finds out he's got that wife just in the attic. Like yeah. the the heart yeah. wants what it wants, Lauren. Something's gotta give. Yes, I, yes, that's it. I guess you, something's got to give. That's what we're going to call that now on the show when we see that in literature. Mm-hmm. We're going to go, yep, not a great decision, but I guess something's got to give. Getting back to our show, um, Ariel and I had a really lovely chat about rom-coms and how they make us reevaluate our own feelings and priorities, as well as her book, which is all about the way we devalue women's literature and classify it as a guilty pleasure. Now, Hannah, will you do me a favor and read the following passages from her introduction? I just really loved them. And I was like, oh, yeah, this feels very, feels very bonnet to dawn. Okay. When I teach American literature, I tend to focus on work by women writers, queer writers and writers of colour for no better reason than I find these works more interesting to read. Most of my students do too, but sometimes I get a complaint. Why don't we learn more about war, some students have asked. We do learn about war, I reply, citing Richard Wright's 1940 Native Son, which is about systemic racism, mid-century communist sympathy and its vilification and widespread physical violence. Those are wars. Students tell me these are not the wars they mean. I tell them how Edith Wharton's 1920 The Age of Innocence is about the aftermath of World War I, a good, solid white man's war they shake their heads. But then sometimes they come to see how it is true. It was only when I got to college myself that I really understood that history could be something other than leaders and battles and captains of industry. I took a course called Women in Europe that was a history of the lives of women, a revelation. I immediately became a history major. Of course, the women who've written novels throughout history do the exact same thing that Jameson's male novelists do. They narrate the psychic and emotional history of another time, their psychic and emotional history. Louisa May Alcott's 1869 Little Women, for example, is also a novel about a war, the American Civil War. But unlike Stephen Crane's snooze of a novel, The Red Badge of Courage, 1895, it's not about the men on the battlefield. It's about the women at home who are doing real, serious, important things as well. These women may be more left out of history, but they were not left out of life. And what happened off the battlefield is just as important as what happened on it. Despite this, and even how beloved and respected Alcott's novel is, I don't see people carrying around a prestige copy of Little Women the way they might Moby Dick or Ulysses or Gravity's Rainbow or Infinite Jest. But Little Women and other novels written by the women of the past can also make you smarter if you actually read them. And they have a lot to tell us about what people were like then and how we became who we are now. This is why many of us find reading these books so deeply pleasurable, even as we may feel ashamed of that pleasure, because so much of our world has told us that this kind of becoming isn't important, that it and we don't matter. 
In addition to revealing some truths about our collective unconscious, novels help us to work through whatever it is we're dealing with as a society and as individuals. If anything about this kind of media consumption is self-definitional, it's the shame associated with it. Not because guilty pleasures reveal some fundamental truths about the consumer's lowbrow aesthetic tendencies, but because of the genres of movies and television that get referred to as guilty pleasures are also another kind of guilty pleasure. What I like to think of as the Hester Prynne kind, where guilt is what's being pleasurably stimulated alongside libidos and baser desires for nice hair and fancy things. So we are going to get into all of that today and briefly discuss a couple of women writers who have been on our radar for a while. So first up, we'll be mentioning Elizabeth Drew Stoddard, who is a writer from New England, and she was born in 1823. Now, she's most famous for a book called The Morgansons. And um, I kind of want to discuss this book on the show sometime. It's a, it's kind of an odd one. And people do compare her to people like George Eliot and Sarah Orne Jewett and Kate Chopin, especially since she has this sort of uh, regionalist mm. flair to her writing. The other writer that we will be chatting about is E-D-E-N Southworth, Eden Southworth. So E-D-E-N stands for Emma Dorothy Eliza Navit. I know. Not sure if I pronounced that one right, but hey, we're going to call her Eden or Mrs. Southworth in this interview. And she was an American novelist uh, that has over 60 books to her name. She was very, very popular. She doesn't come up a ton and she really should. And uh, to hear why, just stick around for that interview. And before we dive into that, uh, just a little more background on today's amazing guest. So Ariel Zubrak is a writer, researcher, editor and educator living in the Rocky Mountain West. Which sounds yeah. amazing. I don't know where yeah. that is. but <laughs> <laughs> So originally she's from the greater Boston area. She moved to New York in 2003 to work at Random House, which is where Jude Law's character works in The Holiday. And there she was an assistant editor of popular fiction. She left publishing to pursue a PhD in 19th century American literature at Boston University and is now an associate professor of English and gender and women's studies at the University of Wyoming. She is the editor of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, New Centenary Essays from Bloomsbury and the author of Avidly Reads Guilty Pleasures. Ariel is currently at work on a book about the history of consumer feminism and new age philosophy in America, tentatively titled In the Image of Our Own Desires. And she can be found online at arielzibrak.com. Well, let's have that conversation. Let's launch into it because I think people, yeah, like defining what is a guilty pleasure. What is good? What is a guilty pleasure? What does it all mean? What does it all mean in content? in your book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think where I kind of start talking about it in the book is just my own experience of reading and coming to media, which was very like solitary to the point where even now after having like a PhD in literature and teaching literature and most of my friends are like also scholars of literature, I will still constantly have read things that nobody else has read or have not read things that everyone else has read because Mm -hmm. it's almost like, for whatever reason, my literary development, like I missed the boat on these are the, these, this is the mandatory reading and this is the optional reading. Right. Um, so 
I kind of belatedly came to understand what people meant when they said guilty pleasures, which is that, you know, it's a way of saying like, I take pleasure from an aesthetic object, but I'm not willing to own it as part of my own like aesthetic identity. And I think it's a window into how much we use our aesthetic decisions. And, you know, to some in some way, like our aesthetic decisions are part of our consumer identities. And so much of the way that we express ourselves or identify ourselves is through what we consume, whether it's like our style of dress or, um, you know, what music we listen to, what books we read, which is why also in the beginning of the book, I talk about dating websites, because I think that's a place where you really see it too, where people are really trying to tell you something about themselves by like, if you, if you get a question on a dating website, that's like the last book you read, you don't answer with the last book you read. Right. you answer with the book that you want to communicate, like, this is me via this book. So I think that the generally understood meaning of guilty pleasures is like things that you are proud of advertising, consuming. And there's also like, there's a sub aspect of that where I think it's also, um, when you say something is a guilty pleasure, there's a form of pride about that too. Like there's Mm -hmm. a kind of, boastful anti-intellectualism that I think is almost just as misguided as saying like the last book I read was Ulysses as it is to be like um you know my guilty pleasure is Taylor Swift if you're a dude that's supposed to be endearing um but I think that for women to say that something is a guilty pleasure is very different because the whole concept of guilty pleasures is for me so gendered and so where I arrive at in the book is more like um First off, I think that the whole notion of the highbrow and the lowbrow is a concept that is organized around race and gender. And so things that are highbrow tend to be associated with white masculinity and things that are lowbrow tend to be associated with the culture of people of color um, or women. And so that is one reason why I don't really subscribe to the traditional definition of guilty pleasures. But what I do think uh, the term is useful for is to describe a phenomenon that I see in media consumption, which is Um, when people who, and you know, I talk about in the book femme identities, um, because I definitely don't think this is a phenomenon that just exists for like any category that we can concretely define as women. I think it's like Andrea Long Chu wrote a book called Females, uh, where she talks about, she makes this claim that everyone is female, that to be female is kind of this state of secondariness or subjugation. Um, And I think a lot about Simone de Beauvoir's concept of the, of, of the female as a second sex and the woman as a secondary being. And so when I talk about like femmes in the book, I'm also kind of talking about a sort of sense of yourself as secondary, like an accessory to another person or to be put in a position where your desires have to be made subjugated or secondary to someone else's desires. And so I think that for people who find themselves in that situation, to consume media that is about the kinds of guilt that come with that sort of secondary social status is really cathartic. And so for me, guilty pleasures are like media pleasures that engage us pleasure, media that engages pleasurably with our guilt. The things that we feel guilty about, whether they be attended to like our own desires or our own social identity that get kind of like exercised through the consumption of these products that can sometimes, as we've been talking about, be at odds with our own personal politics 
or at odds with our own. And and this is the way in which there is kind of like an overlap with the traditional guilty pleasures definition, because they can also be at odds with our own sense of self. Like, I don't think you should be, but you could potentially feel very deeply conflicted about liking to read romance novels or watch Sex and the City if you think about yourself as like a present day feminist. I feel like I could also take you down a whole Real Housewives line (laughs) as Real Housewives are my number one, I think, guilty pleasure. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't watch Real Housewives a lot, to be honest with you, but I could totally imagine why you might love it. Let me take a stab and tell me if you think there's any of this there. Yeah. Which is like, there's a kind of my kind of guilty pleasures that I think is like, it's, it's the like parodic exaggeration of like the femme messages in the ether where it's like mm-hmm. you want to see it done up big so if it's like the aesthetic the tensions that we encounter while like being female in patriarchy um mm-hmm. the consumer desires that are constantly foisted upon us like you just want to see mm-hmm. them like done up like up in stars lit up huge and i think that yeah. there's something almost like cathartic about that because it's like um it's like this you know orgy of of like experiencing and visualizing all of the desires that are fed to us but that we have complicated feelings about inhabiting absolutely class and money and just consumerism is just like the heart of that show and the other day I was like, oh, it's such a bummer to watch during the pandemic because I don't want to be reminded of this pandemic and I don't want them to go on like small vacations, you know, to just go go camping or hanging out at a cabin somewhere. I want them to go to Paris and like consume and I want to like watch this consumption that I am also, yes, personally at odds with. And yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, and that, I mean, I think is a really good example of how another thing that I think happens in what I call rich white people fictions is you don't want to see people who are having the kinds of everyday problems that you have because Mm -hmm. you're already exhausted and bored and frustrated by that. So you want to see people who are having ridiculous problems that we can sit here and make fun of and be like, I can't believe this is an issue for her. But yet that is precisely why you're watching it because how delightful if that was your big issue. I cannot stand a housewife who is like my age. Also, I'm like, I can't handle a housewife that has young kids. No, I don't want this to be part of it. I don't want to see a two-year-old have a meltdown in a grocery store. I live that. So yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think that's funny because that like runs counter to what people typically say about fiction and especially why women are invested in fiction. So there's Mm -hmm. this old line about like women just want to see characters who are like themselves. It's a kind of a part of the literary critical misogyny of the tendency to biograph, like to do really deeply biographical criticism about all female writers. You see that happen Mm -hmm. so much more than about male writers. And the insinuation there, of course, is like, they don't have the same level of genius. So they just write their lives. And women write novels about other women's lives that mirror their own. And there's like, a whole horde of like presumed intellectualism that runs through that because it's saying, you know, women are so deeply committed to like realism and, and emotionalism and that's that's all that appeals to them. And so I think if that were true, we would not be watching or consuming reading fictions about people whose lives were so drastically different from our own. I was thinking about, there was something else that I was gonna put in the book, but I didn't. 
um, that's kind of about this, which is about the Downton Abbey movie, which like the Sex and the City, just like yes. any love that you have for the series. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> it's like the series <laughs> is over. It's never going to be good again. <laughs> and it was so gratuitous, everything about it. Like there's really no plot. The whole plot is basically mm-hmm. like they're having a ball. They're having, yeah, it's just a party. They're just throwing a party. There's but no I, tension, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking at the end of it when they actually show the ball, which was so great. I was terrified they were not going to show the ball, but I'm like, why would they do that to us? Um, but at the end of it, when all the servants watched the ball, I was like, that would that's ideal for me. I'd rather mm-hmm. watch the ball than be like have to be a an object like in it, like subject to scrutiny. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because everyone's like looking at what is everyone wearing? Who are they dancing mm-hmm. with? It's like everything's so political and like fraught. You don't you don't want to be yeah. in terms of being inside the ball. You want to be like the person looking through the curtain, sneaking a glimpse at the ball, and then you go down totally. the stairs and like get drunk with your friends. I don't want to be part of that theater. No, I just want to like- I want to talk about it. <laughs> But what's so messed up about that is they're like leading you into that fantasy, which is mm-hmm. a fantasy that brings us, you know, as we've been discussing to like a deeply horrifying conclusion, which is like, it was better to be a servant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what they do. And they, I mean, this is a trope in, in like a certain kind of literature. And I think it's funny, like, I feel like Charles Dickens is actually a great femme writer as well and, like, contributes mm-hmm. a lot to this genre and a lot of people take from him. And, you know, one of the criticisms that Dickens faced from his sort of later contemporaries, like the Victorian novelists who immediately followed him and were influenced by him, is that he wasn't radical enough. Because what he basically yeah. does is, like, drum up sympathy for, you know, children or poor people or workers, whatever, and then the moral is kind of like, it would be better if their lives were a little better. Yeah. Not a restructuring of anything. Like, and Downton Abbey mm-hmm. is that. It's not like arguing, you know, you're rooting for the class structure to not experience an upheaval. You're like, right. You yeah, want Downton to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, for it's some reason. Nothing. Because at Downton, like the the servants' lives are like are nice. Right. So it's like part, it's right. And that's a Dickensian fantasy where it's like the, the structure gets to stay the same forever, but it's just like, everyone's a little bit nicer to each other. You say in the book that we need to change bodice rippers to bonnet tossers. And I loved that. And can you like explain that? I will. But first I also just have to tell you that there is a bodice ripping scene and something's got to give, which I forgot too. He cuts her out of her turtleneck. <sighs> And then he, he does. Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's kind of, to me, the bodice ripper is about the freeing of the sexual desire, which is very much what's going on in that scene. Mm-hmm. Something that I build on in the book throughout is like that there always has to be this parallel trajectory between the freeing of the sexual desire and also the acknowledgement of the gendered shame. Mm-hmm. So that like they can't, exists without each other and that's part of what's so cathartic and satisfying about these these kinds of like what I call rough sex sex scenes in bodice rippers Mm -hmm. and so I think that like the bodice covering as it does like the bosom and torso and as we associate it with like that ripping open 
and the bearing of the breasts is like the release of sexual desire. But the bonnet is really the, the place, the site of like body shame and especially like gendered shame. Like you cannot appear out in the world without your bonnet on, your hair, your very hair is a scandal. Um, and, you know, as I say in the book too, bonnets are also like very susceptible to micro changes in fashion. So you see, you know, in any given year. So in the 19th century, people, you know, obviously did not change clothing as often as we did, we do. So we have this kind of cultural logic of like back to school shopping or, you know, I'm going to a wedding, I'm gonna get a new dress. People in the 19th century didn't have that many clothes and clothes are really expensive to make. So fashion couldn't move as quickly except for, for the exceptionally rich. Um, and in fact, like even with wedding dresses, I mean, prior to Queen Victoria wearing a white wedding dress, women would just wear their fanciest dress to their wedding. And then even after that white wedding dress thing, most people would get their dress altered and wear that dress like around whenever they had an event. So bonnets were something that you could change really frequently. Um, and therefore like your bonnet had to be on point. Mm -hmm. So you see bonnets as a source of shame coming for young women coming both from other women and from men where it's like to be seen without a bonnet is very sexualized or like vulnerable. Um, to be seen in the wrong bonnet can like misalign you with class or like occasion. It's a very early instance of that, that anxiety that we all have. And this shows up in, in femme fictions like everywhere um, about wearing the wrong thing to a thing. Yeah. But also like the intentionally seen stealing outfit is a trope that I love or mm -hmm. the like the teenage like angry underdressing. Well, there, there's my aesthetic. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really good revolutionary impulse. Don't abandon that ever. Um, you asked me over email what my favorite bonnet scene was. Mm -hmm. Do you and have a favorite bonnet scene in literature? My favorite bonnet scene in literature is the one I talk about in the book, which is mm -hmm. when Ellen Montgomery is deeply ashamed of her bonnet. She's wearing the wrong bonnet and she doesn't know it. And people are talking about her. I just feel that so heavy. And part of that I think is because I once went to school with the wrong trapper keeper and that's the analogy for me. Ooh. I was like deeply mocked for, I had a Lisa Frank trapper keeper. You were which, mocked for that? Those were the good ones. I thought that was the height of fashion, but that was like last yeah. oh. had, So this is when I switched to a new school and it had like, okay. these had shifted. Oh dear. Yeah, and I was like laughed out with my trapper, my trapper keeper. I really coveted that Lisa Frank trapper keeper. I can just picture the like the purple and the unicorn, and like I don't know exactly. It's the same exact thing that happened to Ellen Montgomery. It's like I came in there bursting with pride about the fact that I was going to have the hottest trapper keeper around. Mm -hmm. No, you're late. Um, so I love that scene. But then I was wondering, do you know the novel The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard? I have it upstairs and I, I have not started it. It's just, it doesn't, it's not a bonnet scene, but it's my favorite bonnet novel. Mm -hmm. Because the entire novel, which I think that both of you too would love, 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 um, is like, it's very mean girls. And a lot of it is just about like 19th century wardrobe shaming. <laughs> so there are That's so great. many passages of like aggressive bonnet wearing and also like critical bonnet wearing and like bonnet, criticism um trying to there's like a 
That is really a great way to sell me that book. I started it and then I was like, okay, I don't know if I'm in the mood for it. But now that you've said that, I'm like, oh, I wish that was on the front cover. Um, It's very angry all throughout. It's very angry, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's also like really minimalistic and dark. So like this is a sample dialogue. Now we must go, she said, and get ready. What shall you wear, Mrs. Summers asked, advising a certain ugly claret-colored silk. Be sure not, said Adelaide on the stairs. That dress makes your hair too yellow. So this is some real housewife stuff. It's very mean. Um, And then another thing that happens is like, there's one paragraph that's just one sentence where she's like, someone asks her to eat with him and she wants to say no. And then the one sentence paragraph is, I thanked him and tied my bonnet. (laughs) (laughs) I love I love angry bonnet tying. It's like, I'm out. (laughs) Bonnet tying. I'm closing (laughs) up. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I mean, I think that we think of the bonnet and I talk about it as being like a, a shame, an object of shame where it's like, Mm -hmm. but it's also, and, and I think this is the sort of like, connected to the mixed way that we consume our own culture, the culture that is about us, people who identify as femme, um, is that like, it's also a major source of pride. Like the very thing Mm -hmm. that you're wearing to be like, acknowledge your own body shame is also the place where you express yourself fashion wise and the place where you like, you, you close, you're closed for business. It's like, it's a marker of your public self. And so to put on your bonnet aggressively is like, I'm leaving. And it's also like, (laughs) Um, this has now become a, like a, a distant, a more distanced relationship or like, like it's right. a foreclosure of intimacy. Like I'm going to put my bonnet on this. Mm-hmm. It is a good day, sir. Yeah, it is sort totally yeah. a good day, sir. And it's like, I mean, it's like, it has, it bears a resemblance to like the male hat mm-hmm. in the same period, but it's really, really different because of all the gender politics of those two garments. But I do think all yeah. the time that like we lose a lot of sartorial expression when we stop wearing stuff on our heads, like as a matter of mm-hmm. course. So for some reason, the hidden hand keeps like coming into my life. <laughs> like one week it was really strange. Like I kept getting like emails like, are you guys going to cover the hidden hand? Like what's going on with the hidden hand? And I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like a conspiracy. Everyone just decided to hit me at the same time. But um, I feel like this has come into my life sort of at the right time. And then Sarah, of course, mentioned your book. And she was like, you should talk to her about the hidden hand. Have you done the hidden hand? I was like, you're the third person to say that to me this week. So I think we have to do it, right? And did you read it prior to this? No, I didn't. It was so weird. (laughs) I don't know what happened. But um. So you will be the first person on our show to talk about Mrs. Southworth. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's I can't believe I had never heard of her before uh, this year. When I honestly believe I had never heard of her before. And when I teach her works, my students are like enraged that they've never heard of her before because she was literally the most popular American novelist of the 19th century. Yeah, this is wild. So, okay, so who who is this woman? She's got a lot of first name. Yeah, so that's really her name. That was her, like, her parents named her that, E-D-E-N Southworth. Um, And she went, a lot of her books uh, just have on the cover Mrs. Southworth. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but she was a white woman, a middle-class white woman um, living in the East Coast in the 19th century. Um, her husband deserted her in 1844 to go to Brazil in search of gold. And she never heard from him oh. again. Wow. Yeah. Um, and she had two <laughs> children, didn't know what to do. She came from, you know, she, she was educated. She came from an educated family um, and, you know, was a fan of literature. So she started writing. And um, by 1856, she had an exclusive contract with one of the top newspaper publishers in the country, um, Robert Bonner at the New York Ledger. And it was sort of, she was an incredible businesswoman in addition to being a great writer. Um, she really, she switched between different editors and she negotiated for increasingly um, better pay. And she also was one of the first writers to be sort of like a staff fiction writer. So she received an annual salary from the New York Ledger for her novels. Oh, oh awesome. Um, and she ended up buying like a fabulous townhome in DC um, and being like a major, major celebrity of her day. So she not only, you know, we don't even know how many novels she wrote. Um, now scholars think it's probably somewhere between 60 and 70 novels. It also depends what you call a novel, but so much of her work is out of print and we're finding new novels by her all the time. So I, not all of her novels were published in volume form. In fact, most of them remained only in serial form, but like, mm -hmm. even just since I've become aware of her, when I go to yard sales or like, um, you know, any kind of like swap meet or church sale, I often mm -hmm. find first editions of her novels because oh wow, so many volumes of them were published because she was so popular. And so few people, you know, still know about her that right. you can get them very cheaply. Even if you search online, you can find tons of editions of her novels um, from the 19th century very cheaply because there are just so many of them extant because so many were produced. Mm -hmm. um, but she became kind of like a metonym for popular trashy fiction during the period. So when America was really in this period where it was trying to define itself as having a literary culture and contribution that was apart from England, like this concept of what is American literature really animated the white men who we think about and associate with the American Renaissance. Um, like they were trying to determine what kind of a literary contribution America could make that would be distinct from the literary contributions that England had already made. And in some ways, like Southworth was the quintessential American writer, but what she became instead was sort of like a straw person for the literary establishment to be like, this is like popular trash, terrible literature. Mm -hmm. And what we want American literature to be is very much the antithesis of this. So like, it's, it's not Southworth is kind of- Right. Like she, be, she came to represent this pole of like terrible literature. And in 1920, The Hidden Hand went out of print and it was completely out of print until 1988. Oh, so there wow. was a whole very long period when really nobody read it and nobody knew about it. And she was not included in any of the histories of the, so it, through that entire period, 1920 to 1988, literary scholars were busy constructing an entire literary history of the United States that did not include her, even <laughs> though um, she wrote more novels than Hawthorne, Twain, Melville, and Stowe combined. So, and she, did she know Harriet Beecher Stowe as well? Did she have a, they were friends, right? Okay. I don't know that they were friends, but they were both, they both were in abolitionist circles. Okay. So an interesting thing about Southworth is she started her career writing 
um, for abolitionist newspapers. And her first novel was a kind of abolitionist novel um, about the revolt in Santo Domingo. Um, and scholars have been really, I think an interesting scholarly question regarding her work is sort of like the extent to which she was a real abolitionist and also trying to understand the nature of her racism because The Hidden Hand is like, in a lot of ways, a very deeply racist novel. The portrayals of actual African-American characters are like painful to read. Um, there's like a servant named Wool and a servant named Pitapat, and it's like really stereotypical, horrible caricatures of these characters. Um, but she also does something that I think, you know, white fictions today still really do, which is there are white characters who are sort of coded as black. Mm -hmm. And that is the way a kind of black consciousness enters the text. But like, in a way that's, it's more racist than if you had like a <laughs> actual, like actual African-American character. So I was thinking about that in terms of, I cannot stop talking about something that's got to give now either. I mean, because, it gets, it just gets in there and it lives in your it. brain. He's, I, the fact that he's a hip hop producer is exactly the, the kind mm -hmm. of thing that Southworth would do. Where it's like, um, there's this really wonderful scholar named Brigitte Fiedler who works on 19th century mm -hmm literature as well. I don't know if you're familiar with her work at all, but she just recently wrote a book called Relative Races, where she talks about how like the way that race works in the 19th century is that people would kind of get um, associated with a different race through like a racial taint. So mm -hmm. this is something that happens to Capitola the heroine in The Hidden Hand, which is that she is smuggled away her it's a very comp the plot of this is so baroque it's like <laughs> but she when she's an infant she's smuggled away and the person she's slated to be murdered and the person who saves her is a mixed race like midwife mm -hmm. and so she's raised by this in secrecy by this mixed race woman and that kind of like races capitola so even though she right. the main character is like a white woman she's a white woman who has this kind of racialized paint and portrayal and the same thing is happening to her with gender because at the beginning of the novel, she's also found, um, that's her back history that I just told you, but at the very beginning of the novel, she's found dressed as a boy selling newspapers in New York. So she has this ability to pass between racial identities and gender identities. Um, and in moments in the novel, you feel that Southworth is really trying to make a kind of like gendered intervention there are times when she's like, when women get their rights, Capitola will be a general in the army. Um, there are times when it's like, it calls her a little Napoleon, a bit of a Don Quixote. Like there's all this gender and race bending that happens. Um, but at the end of the day, she gets the standard like middle-class white woman's happy marriage to mm -hmm. um, what in the book I call a brother lover plot, which is like, when she has a when you have a brotherly relationship with somebody all along, and then in the end they become your husband. Mm -hmm. Her real sexual passion is for Black Donald, the other like very racialized villain character, who's the the like bad guy misogynist that the logic of femme fictions would tell us she could end up with. Mm -hmm. Who would be yeah? Who would become the form reformed rake in other stories? Right. Although, in the, yeah, in this case, he's more than even a rake. He's like an evil villain who murders Criminal. people. He like literally rapes people and mm -hmm. is like the scourge of their geographic area. He's 
he lives in like a robber's den with other criminals that seem to be like taken out of German folklore and they like, you know, eat weird stews and like drink frothy ale together. <laughs> yeah. Um, you described him perfectly as Jason Momoa, which that's how he lives in my head now. Yeah. With like a very long, it's kind of more, the hair is more Mandy Patinkin, but everything else is Jason Momoa, I think. <laughs> I'm curious to know, like, how, how does it teach? Like, how do your students react to it? It's a wonder. I, I mean, I recommend it to everyone and I think it's wonderful to teach, but I think my general position is like, one, I don't want to not teach things because I'm, I don't like their politics. I think that mm -hmm. part of my job as, as someone who teaches 19th century literature is giving students a sense of what the 19th century was like. And part right. of what the 19th century was like, which is also true of now, is that our culture was built on deep foundations of really intense racism. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we only teach students the, you know, the very few writers whose politics we feel that we could champion, it gives a false sense of like the history of our country and also how deeply racist popular culture was all the time right. and continues to still be. And so I think that when we see what the popular culture of the 19th century looks like and the racism is a little bit more blatant, then when we go back to reading, to watching a Nancy Myers movie, we could see that it's making all the same racist moves. It's mm -hmm. doing it in a slightly more subtle way. And so I think that actually when you teach the racism of the past, it kind of like shows us how entrenched it still is in our culture because that racism becomes embedded in a certain set of tropes that while we may jettison like the more overt ones, I think the the like the more insidious ones, which are still I still see everywhere, um, can be traced back to these these like 19th century tropes and, and the popular culture mm -hmm. that really captured the nation's imagination in this time. So I like to teach it for that reason. I mean, the other thing that I think it does really well is demonstrate how much the American popular concept of womanhood is based on whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so um, a book that I'm really excited about reading that's coming out soon by a scholar named uh, Kyla Schuller is a really comprehensive history of white feminism in this country um, and oh. the way in which the feminist movement, the popular feminist movement has been so organized around concepts of whiteness. And I think that mm -hmm. um, you see the same thing in popular culture, of course, which is a mirror of our history. And I think tells, tells us a different kind of history um, and throughout popular culture. And in the hidden hand, we see this, especially like when Capitola is most woman is also when she's most white. And so when I talk about like rich white people fictions, I think a lot about how the ways in which our desires to attain a kind of femininity, we love to talk about like unrealistic beauty standards um, and these kind of like blanket non-intersectional gendered conversations within popular culture. But I think that what the popular discourse has to capture more and more is how from the very get-go within the American context, it's like the popular feminine is just so saturated in ideas of whiteness. There's even a time when, so Cap, this is a character as a sort of ambiguously raised person myself, like this is a character that I always identified with as a child, which is like the dark haired woman that nobody knows what she is, like the mm -hmm. racially inscrutable figure, which is definitely what, what Capitola is. And her double, and the, that, that character always has a blonde double, you know, mm -hmm. but like a good, the good feminine blonde girl. And her double is um, 
a, a girl named Clara Day, who's like blonde and blue eyed and angelic and like inhabits the feminine in this completely uncompromised, perfect way that Capitola could never possibly attain. And there's this great um, scene where they have to, for again, really wild plot reasons, they have to switch. So Clara has to marry somebody evil and Capitola decides to save her by pretending to be Clara and going to the altar for her. And then at the moment when she's supposed to say, I do jumping out like a pirate and being like, Oh, it's me. Ha ha. You're foiled. <laughs> so she, they rehearse being each other together. And it's like, it's this incredibly gendered scene, but it's also this incredibly raced scene. Um, and one, the advice that Capitola gives to Clara to be her for Clara to be Capitola is she says, if you go doing the sentimental, you won't look a, look like me a bit and that will spoil all. Keep your veil close for it's windy, you know. Throw back your head and fling yourself along with a swagger as if you didn't care. And there you are. And it's like, she's teaching Clara to be less feminine mm. in order to be like a passable version of her. And in the same way, Capitola has to, like Huck Finn does when he dresses as a girl, Capitola has to practice walking like a girl in order to be Clara. And so it's, you know, it's not incidental that Cap is the dark figure, but also the more masculine figure. And the way that she learns femininity is through this like blonde blue eyed girl who like inhabits it effortlessly. Man, I'm just now thinking too, like, I feel like there's, you could trace that. I can't think of like off the top of my head, but I just feel like I've seen that scene also in movies, like modern movies, modern rom-coms for yeah. sure. Like the same, same thing, like what you're saying. It's just, it's still happening in popular culture. It's just being passed down. Yeah. And then on top of that, a lot of times that trope also comes with the, the darker person, the darker female person is like the more bookish one. Right. And the blonde one is like, her job is to be hot. Mm-hmm. And so they also have to like come to a kind of meeting in the middle point on that issue as well. Yeah. Someone's got to get contacts, you know. Right. <laughs> take those glasses off. Learn how to wear heels. Still don't know. <laughs> Giving up on that one. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in, um, this is true in uh, another like film that I talk about in the book is um, Bride Wars. I was just saying, I was wondering if it was in Bride Wars too for a minute there. I was like, oh, Yeah, gosh. where it's like we yeah. get the brunette. I mean, obviously still a very, very white person, but the but the darker person is Anne Hathaway. Mm -hmm. And Kate Hudson is the more feminine, the more princessy, the girlier. And Anne Hathaway is the more masculine. She like she like likes to watch sports and also the more bookish and the smarter. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just that trope never dies. And we are back. Lauren, that was a great interview. Thank you. I had so much fun. I cut a lot. I left um, a really great section, I think, that you'd love on the cutting room floor about, I said, you know, I know that we hate watch and we really got mm. into like what hate watching is, but like, do we hate read? And oh, I that hate read really... that Ian McEwen book 100. I knew from like page two that that book was going in the bin. I did hate read like most of Fifty Shades of Grey, like that series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that um, as an audio book. Just, oh, you did? I did it. I did it. So I worked at a comic shop in London called Gosh Comics, premier comic shop in the UK. 
big recommendation for that. And um, yeah, I was listening to the audiobook on YouTube and then my manager came in and he was like, hey, Anna, if you're going to listen to audiobooks on our YouTube, can you not listen to Fifty Shades of Grey? Because everyone can just see that's what you're doing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would be doing like, uh, I used to make the event posters and like fulfill the library orders. So I just mm-hmm. spent a lot of time not talking to anyone, like just at my desk. And I got through yeah. all of these books and he was like, hmm. <laughs> Not well, that at one. that point, I feel like you should you need to lean into it. Start oh. playing it in the store over the audio. Yeah. Honestly, I should have. Uh, I loved so I loved Ariel's definition of guilty pleasures, and mm. I was really really glad that Taylor Swift came up because I was actually thinking about her like within that context a lot this week, mm-hmm. and about um just if you indulge in a guilty pleasure, if you just like you do it a little bit and then you keep doing it, then it does eventually, I think, stop being a guilty pleasure. Oh, I think sure. it's unavoidable that you kind of, the like, well, no, that's not true. I've only, I only need to read Fifty Shades of Grey once, right? So I'm not going to take that on. But Taylor Swift <laughs> used to be a guilty pleasure and I would like listen to her, like, you know, just a song if it would come into my head with my headphones on. And then the folklore long pond studio session was on disney plus and i was like oh wow i'll watch this like mm-hmm. and i watched it i was like oh you know i kind of like it mm-hmm. flash forward to last week where i buy it on vinyl and i sat with like soft mood lighting and like a candle going and i made jack and sam <laughs> listen it to it with me and we just had this whole conversation about the overlap between Taylor Swift and then the singer-songwriter Phoebe Bridges mm-hmm. and how Taylor Swift very much sits within that teen pop girl canon and is disregarded because of that. I I mean, you know, disregarded in the sense that she's very successful and I think people acknowledge her success, but I think there's mm-hmm. also a lot of derision from yes, a certain yeah, category of man talking about it. Um, but Phoebe Bridges is somehow like the acceptable version for mm-hmm. indie music dudes. So they can enjoy her unironically, but Taylor Swift is like another thing. And that's really funny because Folklore was recorded by this guy from The National, whose name I do not need to remember, and another guy who's also like valid within the male indie music community and there's a duet with that Bon Iver dude and you know and just all of this kind of goes a certain way to like legitimize Taylor Swift and then I remembered that Phoebe Bridges sings on Nothing New which is on the re-recorded Red Taylor's version album which Mm -hmm. just just had me thinking about how like the difference between them and how one is a guilty pleasure and one is an acceptable pleasure is arbitrary and It's just part of male gatekeeping in the music industry. What a tangent. (laughs) No, um, I love it. It's funny. uh, Taylor keeps, uh, she's making a really strong impression on this season of Bonnet to Dawn, Mm -hmm. isn't she? She keeps popping up. So another part of the interview that uh, really stood out to me was just the conversation around like learning femininity from someone who inhabits white feminine ideals. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, have you ever seen that Disney film, Summer Magic? I um, have never even heard of it. 
Oh, <laughs> it's from the 60s. It's Hayley Mills. Okay. And there's this song. Oh, it's a Hayley Mills too as yeah. well? Because you know I love Hayley Mills. All right, you should I will watch, watch it. it. I will. There's, I won't. Their song is like, oh, you've got to walk feminine, talk feminine, try, trying to teach this tomboy how to like get the man. And I think it's mm-hmm. her cousin or someone from the city comes in and they're like trying to make Hayley Mills more girly. I think you'll like that. I think you'll like that song. Basically, she kind of does a little bit of that in the parent trap too, trying to make the other twin more mm-hmm. sort of like more femme. Yeah, I think my Oma, my mum's mum, really wanted me to pay attention during summer magic because I did not walk or talk feminine <laughs> as a child. <laughs> just remember watching it a lot at her house, and like it's just now dawning on me why that might have been. <laughs> and she used to sing the song to me. Oh wow, <laughs> she was really trying to get it in there. She was a dancer and she did like modeling when she was younger. My Mm -hmm. Omar was like super petite and, you know, and if we're talking about someone embodying the white feminine ideals, my Omar is Afrikaans. She grew up in, you know, South Africa. And so she really, (laughs) she really embodied those Mm -hmm. and really wanted me to as well. Um, And then did you... Did you feel that as a young woman? Did you feel that sort of internalized like pressure? Oh, there was so much pressure on me. I really take after my my mum as well, um, after my opa. So he's like quite heavy built, like a very solid guy. I was a very solid baby. Um, I am not a dancer. I don't, you know, I don't sing prettily. I'm like quite scruffy. I have like five brothers, you know? And right. so I never, ever, ever hit that standard for her. Mm-hmm. like at all and it was awful growing up um yeah and I think she found like and we can cut some of this maybe I don't know but I think she found like my otherness to her like quite physically uncomfortable mm-hmm. so she would say like oh can't you get any like longer skirts or anything like that and she would like shudder at my like if she saw my body like I was revealing mm-hmm. too much and I was just wearing like normal clothes and so she really had this like very strong idea of what it was to be a woman what it was to be desirable to be acceptable and um yeah now i'm in therapy twice a week and she comes up a lot so (laughs) she really (laughs) she really made an impact and so did summer magic so and i hope you're ready for another tangent right because this Mm -hmm. all interview all of the other stuff that i've said had me thinking about our imaginary emma adaptation that we've been thinking about forever where we interpret yeah. Harriet Smith as a woman of color and how that plays into the narrative of this white woman forcing a white feminine beauty standard on her and how that can go wrong. Yes, absolutely. I mean, honestly, we're just basically taking my high school experience and putting that mm. into a sort of uh, Jane Austen adaptation. And it, it works. This is like the power of Austen, It does right? work. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, exactly. The power of Austin. <laughs> totally works. And you, so you had shared as kind of set up for this week's episode, an essay by Jordan Landry titled Of Tricks, Tropes and Trollops. Great title. Uh, revisions to the seduction novel in E.D.E.N. Southworth's The Hidden Hand. And in that, Landry explains that one of the criticisms of Southworth's novel was that she invokes blackness to comment on white womanhood rather than Mm African-Americans. And the essay goes on to kind of explore 
the ways that um, Southworth's novel is maybe playing with race more than people realise at first. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the reason that that had me thinking about Emma is because at the end of the book, Emma is really, it's told from Emma's point of view, right? Mm-hmm. But And then by the end of the novel, it's only really then that you start to see how she has led us, the reader, astray. Right. And so we're seeing how Harriet and Emma are similar because Emma wants to see where mm-hmm. they overlap. Everything in Harriet that is good and worth noting is how she is the most similar to Emma. And Mr. Knightley, I think probably because of that, really dismisses Emma's assessment of her. But then by the end of the book, and he gets to know her, he actually starts to recognise the good qualities that she possesses in her own right. Mm-hmm. Not as a comparison to Emma, not as trying to be Emma, but just recognising her own standard, not the stand- like this white feminine standard. And I just right. thought that, yeah, that's like... That's just one of the reasons it makes so much sense to read Emma that way and just explore mm-hmm. it. Because I'm not saying that that's what Austen's intention is when she's writing it, but right. who cares? Like if it's bringing you like a new understanding of the novel and of the time that we live in and other literature, then why not lean into that stuff? So Yeah, absolutely. I, I like what you said too about like bringing it to like a, a better understanding of like the time that we live in as well, because it's mm-hmm. funny. It's like, um, I mean, even Ariel said it in the interviews, like once you start mm-hmm. seeing this trope, like it's just, you're like, oh, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I've been sort of unconsciously reading it for many, many years. And now I see it. I see where it came from. 100%. And Ariel had said in the interview as well, and I, I had it written down to quote it. And I, I think I got rid of it, but um. Yeah, just reinforcing the idea that like by it when we better understand the past, we actually are able to understand that the the times we're living in mm-hmm. now. Yeah, you know, and I think yeah, we talk about it every episode of the show, but it is why it's so important and it's so valuable. I'm sorry. Here's my last tangent. Okay, the final tangent, and I, mm-hmm. I'm also sorry for bringing up Mr. Rochester again in Don't one episode. Don't be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But Landry also notes in the essay uh, that in a seduction novel, a seduced woman can only be redeemed in the eyes of her father, which is like polite society personified, right? Uh, By undergoing a physical transformation, which is ill health. And uh, the line was, the seduced woman's bodily repression earns her redemption within the middle class. And we were talking about that earlier in the earlier this year in our Blue Castle read along, specifically season five, episode three. And I remember then thinking that Montgomery was playing against that trope. So the reason that I wanted to talk about Rochester is just that Bronte is also doing this, I think, uh, at the end of Jane Eyre, because she takes the pound of flesh from Rochester and it's only then that he is deserving of Jane. And I think that Mm -hmm. is also a way of it's, kind of performing the same thing but it's subverting it by the guy having to pay a physical price <sighs> i mean if we're gonna bring this back to something's gotta give he has that like massive heart attack right yeah so there oh is also God. a physical 
pound of flesh there that really causes him to face his own mortality and reckon mm-hmm. with his past actions and that sort of thing. So there, there you go. There's your pound of flesh. What I, I think some of my favorite bonnets times are just when uh, we're really just working things out. Like. <laughs> So that's, you know, it for our season and nearly it for 2021. We have we have a little bit more coming up for you guys. Um, we want to thank our amazing guests again for coming out of the show to discuss all things sex, scandal, social climbers. It's been like super eye opening. And I just I would like to revisit this because I do love all of the gossip <laughs> and scandal. It's like it's super fun. So we do have another episode lined up for you guys before the year's end, and that is our annual best books episode. And so we do want to hear from you. I have thrown up posts on our Facebook group and Instagram. I haven't done it on Twitter yet, but I will. And um, (laughs) you guys can just let us know what your favorite reads of 2021 were. And I'm talking whatever, like if if it's an article, if it's a poem, if it's a short story, if it's a novel, all good. Just... And it can be from any time period. A lot of people go, I haven't read anything that was published this year. That's fine. It can be you published 200 years ago. You don't even have to years years it this year. No. You can have read it before. Just yes. what did you What did you read this year? It's about you. That you love. Your God. <laughs> yeah. So Hannah, where can people reach out to us with those recommendations? Where can they find us on the internet? If you want to tell us why why she wrote was your best read of 2021, <laughs> you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy the best book we wrote this year <laughs> called Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Thank you.